0: Welcome to the Personality Portrait Podcast, where we challenge what we think we know about how our personality works and is shaped. I am psychologist Franco Greco. In each episode, I have a conversation with a guest exploring what has shaped their lives and personality. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. In today's episode, it's great to chat with Tracy Holmes. Tracy is an Australian journalist and a presenter on the ABC News Radio. Tracy's had an extensive career in television and radio since the early 1990s, specialising predominantly in sport. She currently presents The Ticket at 11am every Sunday on the ABC News on radio. This podcast was recorded in late 2020. Due to COVID lockdown challenges, the podcast was recorded across two days. I'm really fascinated by this line you've got on your Twitter, don't confuse noise for substance. So take me through a little bit about your personality reflected in that
1: comment.
2: <laughs> I've always been a listener and I like to listen, but by being a listener you also realise that there's noise everywhere, there's, there's people saying things, there's headlines, there's social media has just exploded this, you're bombarded with information every day and not all of that information is correct or necessary or vital or matters in any sense at all. And so, I think it's really important to dig through that mm. and try and let everything settle to see what the essence of something is, to see what the reality of something is, to get what is important and all the other stuff you can ignore. And so, I've been very lucky to be able to teach a lot of young reporters around the world, mm. both with a program the International Olympic Committee runs and one that is run by DFAT and is in partnership with the ABC. And we go to places and train young reporters, we mentor them. And one of the biggest things that is of concern now is that they feel like they're being attacked on social media. They take all of this really personally. And I've been attacked on media, but I actually don't care. I mean, who cares? Who are these people? People send you really mean, nasty things. I don't even know who these people are. Mm. Most times, they don't have a face. They don't have a name. They're a number and an egghead. So that tells me more about them than what they're trying to say about me. Mm. And And a lot of occasions, I feel a bit sorry for them because I think, you know, you're angry about something, you want to get something out, but you haven't even got the heart to give it your actual voice. You've got Mm -hmm. to hide behind something to do that.
0: Has it always been there for you, this concept about, when I read it, I sort of had all this interpretation in my own head about what you meant by, in the sense of, is that there because you've always had this sort of sense that my substance is really quite important, my values are very important in competing in that environment like is that something for you that's been one Is that right two is that reflective of just generally you as a person
2: i don't think that i feel like my my values are more important than anyone else's mm-hmm. because i think values all of those sorts of things come from experience and culture mm-hmm. you know people's cultures around the world are different and so people value different things and it doesn't mean that mine is better than theirs or theirs is better than Mm. mine. It's just an experience. And I think where I've been lucky, and sometimes I see things a bit differently to most other people that I'm with, and that is because my mum and dad, so they they were a young couple, early 20s, and I was three years old, and they heard the surf was good in South Africa. So we hopped on a boat, took 14 days or 17 days or something, and we went to South Africa And so I spent a lot of my childhood in the back of a combi van with a whole lot of surfboards, Mm -hmm. driving through the night, looking out a window at the stars, arriving in a foreign place, meeting the locals, mum and dad would go surfing. I'd play with the kids. You know, then then we moved to Hawaii. We had, again, a very different experience. I lived in the bottom of an old Chinese graveyard because Mm -hmm. the Hawaiian family we lived with were caretakers of this old graveyard. Yeah. So I, I had a really unusual childhood, and so I think that exposed me to a lot, and yeah. I realised then that different people think differently and it's not right or wrong, it's just different. It's experience.
1: So what, what, what did your parents do as, as a living? What are they? What do they
2: do? My dad made surfboards, and he was very successful at that, and people used to fly him around the world to go and make their surfboards, and this was in an era where professional surfing was just starting. My mum was involved in organising contests, so really sort of the surfing industry as it, as it took off.
0: Well, wow, that would have been an amazing experience going around the world, huh? mm. reflecting on it, yeah. What do, you, what do you think you got out of that? I mean, apart from this open to experience perspective, right, so you're able to explore and be curious about things. How did you feel about connection? to places, to people?
2: Well, that's an interesting thing because, you know, much later in life when I married Stan and we had our own kids and we went overseas and they were all very young, our youngest, Jessie, was six weeks old and we moved to Hong Kong. And yeah, a lot of people were like, oh, how are you going to do it? You know, it's so hard with young kids. And I thought, well, I don't think it is because my parents did it <laughs> and I loved it mm. and I've always been so thankful for that. And I, I think it's a mindset isn 't it you know people people fear change, they fear not being around surroundings that they have come to know they 're very habitual, and i don 't think I 'm like that I like change, I love change, I hate things staying the same. it sort of agitates me in a way, <laughs> so I like to learn something new or be exposed to something different all the time, so I think you know i 've tried to give our kids that same experience so the attachment I mean I've I've always thought one of my first memories that really impacted me was listening on radio because we're in South Africa and they didn't have television in the early 70s 69 it was and I remember listening to the Americans landing on the moon and I think this gave me my love of radio as well over television because radio, you're listening and it's very personal and you're using your imagination to visualise what the people are saying. So I listened to them landing on the moon and I've always loved looking at the sky. I love that space and thinking about the world and how they remember that, you know, that they looked back on Earth and thought, my gosh, you know, planet Earth is minute. Mm. How small are we as people that populate it? And so I've always considered myself a member of the human race on this one planet, so I don't feel attached to a particular place over any other place. No. I actually really love people, you know, mm-hmm. and I just love being alive. And so I'm attached wherever I am.
0: I'm happy. You feel at times just more accusing there, like attachment to a tribe. I know that's important from your perspective. No. no,
2: and and I understand that. I never understood it actually until I married Stan. We lived overseas for the best part of 14 years in different places, very different cultures, you know, changing all the time. A lot of the time he wasn't even there with us because he was off reporting on, you know, some war or the Taliban or something. So we all experienced that on our own without him. But I know that it was very important for him to come back to Australia and particularly to the place where he's from, he's Wiradjuri, and I know when we drive into his country, oh, I see that kind of relief, and I can see that he's so much more comfortable and at home. Whereas I have that sense when I go into the, the ocean, I hop into the ocean, providing it's warm enough. Yep. <laughs> I'm quite fussy about the temperature. Don't
1: come from <laughs>
2: <Melbourne>. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, not Melbourne. But I go into the ocean, and that's where I go like that.
0: So it's it's almost like a for you in a way. The immediacy of local is more global in a sense, isn't it? Like it's yeah. you know, it's more nature, but it's actually you, you feel yourself sort of in a sense connected to something broader, bigger, than actually yeah. a local identity. Yeah, and
2: I feel I feel very at home anywhere, actually. Yeah,
0: yeah. You
2: could drop me anywhere, and I feel very at home.
0: Just turn it around a bit. Is that something for you that people don't understand about you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. How does does that make you feel, though, about that that part?
2: Oh, that's okay because people can only understand the world according to their own experiences, and you know, you can't change somebody else's experiences.
0: I mean, how do you feel about the fact that when someone says, "I know you sort of accept it," I guess, but you know, like, but how do you feel about that when people sort of make that out, make that point? You know, know.
2: That's fine. That's fine. Like, that's I, I don't mind. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing. A lot of people don't feel comfortable if they're chatting and somebody in the group sees something differently. They don't feel comfortable. Like They like to be surrounded by people that think the same things. I yeah. don't. So, I mean, I find that pretty boring, actually. If you're all sitting there saying the same things and you've all had the same experience, that's really boring. I'd much rather be talking to someone who, who thinks differently, who sees it differently, and I want to try and understand why they see it differently. I like that kind of challenge.
0: Due to the COVID lockdown challenges, the podcast was recorded across two days. This is the second installment of the interview with Tracy Holmes. I guess the theme I wouldn't mind picking up a little bit is just your childhood in a way because, you know, because you spent a bit of time overseas and, you, you know, you're, you're like your, your father and your family were involved in the surfing industry. Because one of the things that come, comes up for you in a way, just in the surveys that you filled out, like was this notion of, and that sounds a bit, macabre in a way, but it's this notion of social isolation, which actually can be sometimes conceptualised as being, you might not feel this necessarily, right, but there's this part of you that always felt like I, I never fit it in, like I've always been in different places. And the way I located that previously for you was more in a, in a physical sense, maybe moving around quite a bit. Is there anything to that for you?
2: Look, there is, but I've never seen it as a drawback or a negative thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm quite conscious of the fact that I've never been part of, you know, the group anywhere, yeah. but that hasn't stopped me feeling comfortable with the group, you know, and, and different groups. And yeah. so, yeah, it's never sort of worried me. But I guess I just know, like, even I have really <laughs> radical dreams, like my dreams at night <laughs> are from some other planet, I'm sure. Yeah. Like,
0: what? Like what You're telling us, psychologist? Like, so it so I've got to ask, Tell me a bit more about your dreams.
2: <laughs> well, there's there's quite a few that I've had sort of all through my life that I, I remember and I think about quite often, you know, because I think they help me stand back and and look at things to make sure that I'm seeing the picture and and I'm being objective. I'm removing myself a lot from what I'm looking at or trying to understand. Yes, yeah. yeah, so my dreams are a, a lot along those lines. You know, one in particular... And I love this dream for all sorts of strange reasons. But I was sitting in the fork of a tree, and there are a lot of trees around, and they were all completely burnt out. Like when you see a forest that's had a bushfire, you know, it's just like black
1: mm, mm. stumps
2: and arms. And I was sitting in in this thing and and I was watching these planes. And for some reason I thought, I mean, I'm watching World War II. Wow. And these Planes were flying at each other and, and, you know, they were trying to bomb each other and I looked down on the ground and it was just ruin but it had also snowed so it was completely white and even though everything was ruined, it was quite beautiful in that white. Mm. And I was watching these planes and the more I watched, I started laughing because, you know, here were these guys going at each other and, you know, bombing and they had their helmets on and goggles and everything And but the planes were made out of marshmallow. Mm. And I thought, that's just crazy. What are you doing? What are you doing to each other? You know, what are you doing to the, the place underneath? And I think about that. I have a lot of dreams that are sort of similar in nature, you know? Yeah.
0: It's almost like when you talk about it, it's almost like even the, the combatants um, are fragile. But what, what do you take out of that? When you think about a dream, like when you have those sorts of dreams, what do you take out of that? What do you, how do you understand that?
2: Oh, I think, you know, probably shouldn't say this, but I see the folly in, in a lot of stuff. You know, it can be, people can get so uptight and wound up and and it's like if you just sort of stop for a minute and take a breath and say, okay, like in the biggest scheme of things, you know, like when the Chinese talk about the French Revolution and <laughs> ask for their opinions on that and they say it's too early to tell, you know, it's <laughs> it's that kind of a thing, it's like if everyone sort of relaxed a little, mm. and I think that creates quite a few people that are close to me <laughs> <laughs> because I know my mum thinks I don't get, I don't worry about things overly, you know, where, where she would worry. I just kind of don't.
0: Because in a way what comes across for you in a way is this really low, they call it neuroticism, which is this low level of anxiousness. And anger. So, this, this emotional connect not so much emotional connection, but it's more about you're very level headed, aren't you, in that way? And I'm just wondering, you talk about your mum and you, right? So, some other people might find that very frustrating, perhaps. Yeah, you
1: know,
0: yeah, yeah, because the same way, well, what, what, what's going on here? I mean, okay, well, it is what it is, right? It's two marshmallow planes <laughs> fighting against each other. Come on, you know, get
1: over it. Yeah, you know?
2: like tomorrow, we could all be dead, you know? And so, yeah. then what's the point? It's kind of a bit like that, and it's very frustrating for people. And I understand that. I do understand how people get frustrated by that.
0: Yeah. Has it always been with you that level of trait? Where where can you get it from? You're just born with it. You think you, you get it from your dad, or my
2: dad's a bit like that. Yeah, my dad really frustrated my mother. I know that for sure. He'd go to work one day and wouldn't come home for several weeks because he'd heard the surf was good eight hundred kilometres down the road. <laughs> or, you know, he'd go in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race and for eight months no one knew where he was because on his sail back he decided to keep going and then ended up going around the Solomons and yeah, so he's a bit bit like that, a bit of an astral traveler. Yeah. So I probably got a bit from him. But also I've always been aware I'm quite a listener. So I'm really happy. Like I actually <laughs> the funny thing is when when I do essays and things like that, I actually like to be sitting in a coffee shop that's really loud and people having conversations and the world's sort of happening around me, I find I can focus really well in that sort of environment, but I also like to just absorb the environment. I do like to know what, you know, what's happening and how the world okay. is being together. Yeah.
0: Is that why you've gone you went into journals? Did you
2: it wasn't really sort of anything I had this sort of burning desire. I've always liked talking to people. I've always liked finding out about them or their stories. It's like I really like people's stories. And so when I was quite young and my mum <laughs> used to make my sister and I go in surfing contests, I'm just not very competitive in a sporting sense. So I'd sit out the back and usually I'd get the life story of my three opponents not have caught enough waves to progress to the next round and get knocked out <laughs> while my sister, who's ultra-competitive, <laughs> you know, would go all the way through. But I'd learned a lot about everyone that I was surfing against, and I was happier with that.
0: Well, that's yeah. When did you first determine, like, you wanted to be a journalist? When did you first sort of think, oh, that's really what I want to do?
2: So, when I left school after my HSC, and I did all right, but I, I didn't really have any plans as such. And I remember it must have been about six weeks after I finished my HSC. I was asleep. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning. My mum rang up. She was at work. And my mum's always been a real worker, two or three jobs at a time. You know, she was a single parent. My dad and her split up when I was about 14, so she did everything. She rang me up and I answered the phone, hello, and she said, are you still asleep? I said, yeah. She said, right, when I get home, I want you either to be enrolled in a course to have a job or to have moved out. Oh, okay, so I did all three.
0: <laughs> that feeds into your self-sacrificing schema or something, is it like it's a, it's a, you're going to meet the standard your mum sets you?
2: Oh, no, no, I don't see it as self-sacrifice at all. It's mm-hmm. just like, okay, well, if that's what you want, so I just went and did all of them. So I enrolled in a PR course at TAFE. I got a part-time job working in a surf shop and moved in with a friend who lived down at one of the beaches. Then it was, you know, full on. But one of the first lecturers I had owned a PR company. She said to me, I'd really, after a few weeks into the course, why don't you come and work for me? I think you'd be really great. So I went to work for this little boutique public relations company and the same week I started, the World Surfing Circuit came to this company and said, we need someone to do all our PR for the surfing events when they come to Australia. And they kind of looked at me and went, can you believe it?
1: That's I know. Just- I know. It's a- go. Synchronicity.
2: Yeah. So there's a lot of things like that that happen in my life, like things it's like the coincidence is amazing.
1: It's always been sport, hasn't it? Because that's how I see you all the time. It's been more in the sports arena. So
2: I do. Like I've done other things as well, but I always end up coming back to sport. And what I really love about sport is predominantly, overwhelmingly, you're dealing with people who are quite goal-focused. They're positive. They try and achieve those goals. If they don't, if they fail, they reset and they try again. Like I find it a very positive environment. But I also see that it's full of you know people that actually, they're trying to make themselves better. Yeah. And I like that. But what I like is then to try and apply that to the world it comes from. So mm. a lot of people see sport as something sort of off there, like even at the ABC, it's like that thing over there that no one kind of yeah. understands. And they think it's about results and winning and losing, and, and it really isn't. It's it's about, you know, whatever happens in a society, those athletes exhibit that on a basketball court or on a soccer field or, or wherever, mm. a tennis court, you know. So, so I, I like that. It's kind of like it's the psychology of the athletes and yeah. what is about the place they come
0: from. I can't remember the journalist's name. It's just terrible. I can't remember it. But he's a famous cricket and cricketing journalist. Michael, 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 Michael. He made this I was listening to the interview he had on Fox, and he was saying that sports journalists don't get the respect that they deserve. It's like it's I think what you were saying there almost like I don't know you weren't saying that you're saying more about the story, but sports journalists don't get the same adulation or the same respect as other mainstream journalists. Okay, so I'm not sure what your thoughts on that is.
2: Yeah, that's true. And I think Like even if you look at something like the Walkley Awards,
1: they
0: have a
2: sports category and the only people that win it are people that write things about the grand final. (laughs) Right, okay. Not actually journalists, you know. So I I think there's, I prefer not to be called a sports journalist because what that means is actually a reporter who goes to a match and interviews people after they've won or lost. I think there's a very big difference yeah, so I just like to be called a journalist because I think what I do is the same as what any journalist does and this, this idea of what, you know, people's concept, including the journalism industry itself, this concept of a sports journalist, it's a side issue. It's, it's, a, it's filing a match report. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, yeah, I think it's more the, the issue about what you do, isn't it, like what you, in terms of report, report back what has happened and the story and the narrative that sits behind that particular story or that event. So one of the questions I'm really keen to get a sort of background in just around a low point in your life, what would you describe as a, as a low point in your life? I
2: actually don't think i have ever had one, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds really weird. I mean, there really isn't, and I think that's part of you know my flatline personality a bit, but I, I don't see anything like that. I kind of see sometimes things might be difficult, but I wouldn't describe that as a
0: low point. Well, it's interesting because in some ways it's, you know, there's no right or wrong answer to it. It's just more about how you experience life in a way. It's more of a, an ebb and flow, but it's more even, isn't it? Like it's so, I guess maybe turn it around. Like is there, is there a way in which you responded to something that required a lot more, more introspection?
2: I feel like every day what I'm doing or where I am or what I'm seeing, it's happening in two places at once. So, you know, obviously I'm sitting here talking to you But at the same time, I'm kind of back there in my mind and I'm removed from it. So I I do some Buddhist meditation, right? Yeah, okay. The whole thing is that in the end you're not really relevant. (laughs) So you can disappear tomorrow or this afternoon. A few people might be sad for a couple of days and then it's finished. It's over. So, you know, I kind of operate on that system Most of the time.
0: So it's a sense of feeling that there's a sense of what you've learned is a sense of detachment. Yes. And so there's this duality going on at the same time. You're in it but you're sort of removed from it at the same time, right?
2: Because one of the things I learned in this, you know, one of the monks that I was doing some lessons with, he said, you know, this idea that you go home and you set aside 20 minutes to meditate and Mm -hmm. that's where you practice, he said, that's just absolute rubbish. Like you practice it all the time you're not very good at anything if you set aside that 20 minutes to perfect it and then you just go back to doing your normal thing you've got to try and make it part of everything you do and I'm certainly not saying I've perfected that <laughs> but I do try to do that you know so I know that if if I get upset by something or uptight by something it passes so quickly and I think it's you know maybe because of that
0: it's because in a way it sounds a bit like it came out of a Buddhist background but it's a bit like what they call acceptance commitment therapy which is actually a way of not fusing with a thought not fusing with an idea or a, something that's happened
1: oh. and you
0: create some level of curiosity about it and distancing from it yeah and so you, you sort of got two thoughts patterns yeah. going on oh look that's could happen i could connect with that and that could be quite painful or i can just distance myself from it and say okay I'm, I'm observing it right so you're not fusing with it for example yeah. And it's more a relational issue. So you know, people often think about, oh, you know, you got to stop thinking about yourself that way. But it's actually not the the thought itself. Actually it's actually the relationship to the thought that's actually yeah. the most critical bit. And then the way I, the way you described, it, it seems like you you seem to practice or at least develop this sort of sense about yourself as as being in the moment, but actually you're sort of observing yourself at the same. You're an observer. You're an observer to yourself, yeah. and that's being mindful. I guess of you know, I can choose to be quite upset about that or angry about that, or I can be choosing to be not to be. Okay, so I don't know. Is that the way it works for you? Yeah,
1: I think so, yeah.
2: And I know that I kind of went towards Buddhism because I, I know that consciously I've always thought that way. <laughs> but it wasn't like I chose Buddhism or I read about it and thought that sounds good. It was almost like some sort of inevitability because, you know, it also it's one of those things that kept... Coming into my life like that. And I've always felt, you know, when people say things like where are you from, that's a really weird thing to me. And it's funny because I know with Stan, like he's very much from here. He's got a 60,000-year connection to Australia that's and good. he's got all of those, you know, genetic memories or whatever that, that come through and what he's learned from his father and grandfather and aunties and uncles. It's a very different thing because I don't feel connected to any place at all. I love being every place. I can feel as at home in China as I do in Australia, but like, I don't actually like saying I'm Australian because people then make a whole list of assumptions about what that means and I don't actually agree with that. And I always think about, you know, sometimes I think on the bottom of my signature on my emails I say, you know, Tracy Holmes, Sydney and the world because I'm in Sydney at the moment Then wherever I'm living I can just change that. But I always said to my kids, when people say, where are you from, just tell them planet Earth, you know. And whenever I picture planet Earth, I, I never think about the countries with their borders and their arguments and all the rest of it. I always think about the ocean, which is where I really want mm. to be. Mm. And that ocean is the same ocean, that same water (laughs) knocks up on our shore and goes around the world. And, you know, it's just one. And I've always felt like that. And I always feel the best and the happiest when I dive into the ocean.
0: Yeah. Because you're connecting back into something that's more universal, isn't it? Yeah. So, in a way, you're connecting to a universal need, isn't it? A universal connection need, isn't it? Talking about that intersection there with Stan, in a way, do people find that? Difficult to understand or is it just – is it? Oh, I
2: barely tell anyone because who cares?
0: (laughs) (laughs) At last. (laughs) (laughs) At last you can tell someone because in a way that does fit in a little bit about – in a way you might say, well, is that a philosophy that's come up for me because I've always felt that way or is it just a a narrative that we're telling ourselves? You know, is that a narrative that's always been there for you? I'm a part of something bigger or, you know, I'm not actually in one place. You know, sometimes we might think about narrative as being like, the story that we tell ourselves to, to explain a little bit where our past has been, where we are now, and where we're going.
2: Well, no, I think you know, I've always just felt like a bit of a wanderer. You know, my earliest memories are sort of wandering through fields and seeing little Zulu kids and living in mud huts, and yeah, so and you know, then we wandered on to Hawaii and lived in an old Chinese graveyard, and <laughs> you know, there's been some really yeah, I've just sort of i have been very lucky to wander through some amazing places. Yeah.
1: What about turning points?
0: I mean, they're either high or low, or there's are, are they?
2: Well, I guess the biggest turning point was probably meeting Stan, moving in with Stan, marrying Stan, getting his three kids from a previous marriage and my own, and moving overseas, like all in about <laughs> that much <must laughs> time. So. My life was completely, completely changed in a very short period of time.
0: What did you learn from that? Like, what did you pick up from that like about yourself? What surprised you the most during that, during that period?
2: Not much. <laughs> Physically, you know, everything externally had just completely changed. You know, so new house, new relationship, kids that I'd never had before, left our job, moved overseas, no friends, family. Yeah, so that all changed, but essentially it was just, you know, okay, so here's the next kind of adventure. And Stan, you know, the day we moved to Hong Kong, he went straight to the office at CNN and I went exploring and I found this little village, which was at the bottom of the National Park, (laughs) (laughs) and there was a beach. And I thought, this is amazing. Anyway, so I took Stan there on the weekend that when he had it off. And we used to go there every week and it was great. The kids could run around and it was just the most beautiful place. And he said, we're here all the time. Why don't we move here? Because we are in an apartment and it was quite claustrophobic because that's not sort of my style. Anyway, so I said, yeah, okay. And he said, well, you know, let's come out next weekend and do some homework and we'll get a place. So I said, okay. <laughs> so the next weekend we went out there in this little village. It's a hilarious place. It's like it's stuck in a time warp. And the people that live there walk around in bare feet. They kind of fish, you know, they cook with a wok in their backyard. And whenever they used to see us going into work, once we lived there, they go, oh, you're going into Hong Kong today. Like they saw themselves as something completely separate to Hong Kong. Mm. Anyway, so we rocked up there on this weekend and Stan said, so aren't we going to look at places to live in? And I went, yeah. (laughs) And he said, are we meeting someone? And I went, well, there's no real estates or anything. And he goes, because you know, like this, and he goes, what's your plan? And as you go into you come down into the village as a roundabout, and you can go that way to the beach, you can go that way up the headland, or that way back out. That's it. And there's about half a dozen little restaurants, loosely called. And I said, well, I just thought if we stood on the roundabout, someone would come to us. And he looked at me like I was mad, you know. So, you know, all of this was going on. Stan and I were still getting to know each other, really, because it was all so quick. And he he basically said, That hey, you are insane. Like, seriously, that's just not going to happen. Anyway, this Chinese guy started walking towards us and he goes, Stan. And Stan goes, oh, <laughs> what are you doing here? And he goes, I live here. This guy was one of the cameramen at CNN. He said to Stan what are you doing here? And he goes, my wife's got this harebrained idea that if we just stand in this roundabout long enough, someone will come along and rent us a house. And he goes, well, my cousin owns most of the houses in the village and he's got about six for rent, so if you want to come with me, I can show you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Vindicated, vindicated.
2: People don't (laughs) believe that story. I've got tonnes of them, all like that.
0: What does it tell you about you?
2: It tells me that I'm very happy just to go with the flow and, yeah, I'm happy to go with the flow and just be aware of, it's sort of like sitting out the back and I don't know if people who don't surf would ever get this, but when you surf, you sit out beyond where the waves break and you see them coming, you see the swells forming and you decide which one you're going to turn around and catch. It's kind of like that. I feel like I operate on a daily basis that way. Mm. You know, I'll just wait and see which swell is coming and which one's going to suit me and then I'll turn around and catch that.
1: And it's not
0: necessarily that you're always waiting, isn't it? Because in a way... Know,
2: I'm not. And and I'm not. And that's the weird thing about yeah, it. You yeah. Know. yeah, it's it, not at all. And I'm not, I don't think I'm easily influenced by people or led astray. You know, I've never been led astray. No, it's just, I think it's being quite aware of what's going on around me, not not panicking and not trying to change what's around me.
0: It's interesting. I would have thought maybe that, that could be like you, you've got this um, sort of vigilance, not a vigilance in a fearful sense, but vigilance in a sense that the way you just talked there, it almost like seemed like there was a depth there around understanding that there's forces at bay, right, and you've got to pick the right moment, right? Yeah. And that's like in the sport analogy, like it was these players that can always read the game ahead of someone else. Yeah. doesn't mean that they're not in the game, that they read something beforehand, right, and they can see the moves, like three moves ahead of time or something. Yeah. Is it the way you describe it? I don't
1: know. Oh, kind of.
2: I'm very aware of my surroundings, or I think I am. (laughs) People might dispute that. I think I am. And then it's sort of choosing the time of when to get involved, you know, those, those athletes, they're phenomenal. I don't have reflexes that are that fast. <laughs> so they're really sort of dictating, you know, they dictate the play.
0: So if you if you sort of think about it from that angle, what's the narrative then about you? If I had to sort of say it this way, has that never worked for you or is it just, is it always works for you? Oh, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so when you reflect on it, when, when does that not work for you? Are you saying that you stayed there long enough in this?
2: No, I think you know. It's like I don't see it as when has it never worked because all I think is, oh, I just selected the wrong wave. You know, that uh-huh. was a bad wave choice.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So yeah. what do I learn from that? Yeah, and yeah. I want to make sure I don't pick a wave like that again. You know. Yeah, it's more. It's more like that. It's like yeah. having a permanent surf.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know. It's like there's always another wave, isn't there? Yeah. So, so there's always another opportunity. So if it wasn't that guy that came up to you, there was a camera man that. Stan, you, it would be someone, yeah, someone else would have come along. Or maybe the person who actually, who, who actually owns the property yeah. rather, <laughs> rather than a relative. That knew, yeah. knew someone. What about this narrative about yourself? If I had to ask you what your narrative was at 18 versus your narrative now, how different is it to what it is now?
2: I don't think I have a narrative about myself.
0: There's no narrative, no story.
2: And I think it's kind of you asked that because I know yeah, I had some friends, some of my closest friends from the surfing world. And we always used to get into, you know, quite deep discussions about all sorts of things. And one of them said to me one day, do you know what, You, whenever we ask you about you, you deflect it back. And so we don't actually feel like we know you. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that's a really bizarre thing because you've known me for most of my life but you feel like you don't really know me, you know. And so that can either mean I'm incredibly shallow
0: yeah.
2: Whatever that's what they see.
0: Okay, well, what do you think about that? I don't know. You probably think it's doesn't really matter. I, I don't know because I always the way I experienced you a lot in interviews you've done and I've, I've seen you for years. Like I, feel I already know you. Like is I always got a lot of a lot out of them because I think you extracted quite a bit out of people, right? You know, being a good listener, being able to interview people, and I love watching you, you know, and just the interviews you had with people. So maybe there is something there about. You know, the subject matter as well, isn't it? Like it's maybe just let you reflect back a little bit for what other people are doing or saying or whatever. Like you know what I mean? Like who's the real Tracy in a way? Okay.
2: I know who the real Tracy is very well. <laughs> but it actually sort of doesn't really matter how anyone else, you know, what they think of the real Tracy. And I guess there's a lot of different versions out there. In fact, I know there's a lot of different versions out there because they all get in touch with me on social media, you know, and they tell me what I think about things and how wrong I am and (laughs) (laughs) it's quite funny because a lot of those things it's like, well, no. And I think it's also it comes back to journalism as well. When you report on an event or a relationship or a person, people assume you think those things, you know. it's, It's kind of strange.
0: So they, they sort of they sort of personalise it in a way that they make it sort of they align you with a particular sort of thing yeah. that you're reporting.
2: Even yesterday I wrote a story about, or Sunday night, I wrote a story about Senator Rex Patrick yeah. who's calling for a boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics and John Coates, the President of the Australian Olympic Committee and a Vice President of the International Olympic Committee that says, no, that's not happening. So I wrote this thing because Rex Patrick had responded to something that John Coates had sent to one of the Senate committees and so all of a sudden, you know, I'm a massive supporter of boycotts and why don't I pick on businesses doing <laughs> doing deals with China and it's like, no, I never said anything about what I thought. You don't even know what I think about whether there should be a boycott or not.
0: So in a way, journalism does provide a bit of a, it feeds into this observer role, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it does.
0: And, and the reporter observer role. So getting emotionally connected into something like, you know, which is interesting because in a way I see you get emotionally connected into a, into an interview. So you, yeah. you get engaged with the with the subject matter, but that's just you engaging, but you're also observing at the same time, right? So is that, is that you in life, in real life?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So like if you're children, like love people around you, like how do you, like is that the different relationship or is that just the, how do you feel about people you love and people you engage with in friendships? and?
2: I feel very close to, maybe I don't. <laughs> I have a great capacity to love, but I don't want you know I don't want to be a burden on anyone. I don't want that to be a pressure on anyone. So clearly, I love my husband. I love my mother and father. I love my kids. I have a number of friends. Actually, I have lots of friends scattered all around the world. But for and I know it's different for them. For me. It doesn't sort of concern me if I don't speak to them or hear from them or see them for a decade. And I know that when I do, I'm still that same friend. Some people, I think, are more, much more needy and they need that that constant thing, otherwise they feel like the friendship's faded. I got an email from a friend of mine the other day because another friend of ours committed suicide recently. And so this friend, you know, and he said, he was feeling so bad that he hadn't spent more time with this friend who died. And he said to me, And I haven't spent enough time with you, you know. And I I just I wrote back and I said, Look, we'll catch up as soon as you're in town next time. But don't feel bad about that because every day you're my friend. You know, it's not it's not just when I'm seeing you, not just when we're in the same place, like you're my friend, you know. And so I think. My mother used to say things to Stan when I was pregnant. Oh, we've, we're going to have an unattached mother here because mum sort of sees me like that. But I'm really not. I have a fantastic relationship with all of the kids. So the three boys all grew up together, even though only one came out of my body. And they are all so close. And I've got a great, fantastic, close very loving relationship with all of them and with Stan.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, you'll probably understand a little bit the way you, you described yourself and the way, you know, just what I know of Stan just from the public and what he's gone through, that need for attachment and attunement with someone, that yeah. emotional attunement be really quite important because actually Indigenous cultures have strong attunement to their children. Yes. And that's something that's been... Damage, I guess, over the century, over the time that my children's been here. It's been that that sense of attunement with their kids, you know.
2: And I learned that from them. You know, like you said to me at the beginning, there's none of this sort of stepbrother, stepsister thing. Like, there's none of that. They're just all kids together. That was great for me because not having ever had any kids anyway (laughs) and suddenly I've got, you know, I'm both a stepmum and a mum, so much easier just to be the same to all of them with no... No one from Stan's side of the family seen that division. Yeah, I yeah. learned a lot from that.
0: Yeah. So in a way, like, if you think a bit about that one? Like maybe we'll start doing a bit of a profile in here a little bit, you know, because we talked a bit about that already. You know, one of the things that I'm interested in in terms of my own therapy practice that I work in, I, I look at early attachments and unmet need, right? so. And one of these things that come up in, so if you think about personality, think about it in three ways. Like if you think about personality in terms of genetic endowment, traits, and temper, temperament that you're sort of born with and develop pretty early in life, like one to two, it's called temperament. And that intersects with early childhood experiences that perform a, a sense of motivational drive. Sometimes i met need is part of that drive. And then there's this narrative, this story that we tell ourselves starts in mid teens in a way and throughout our life. It really is interesting for you in a way, if I start from the temperament side in a way, is that it's not surprising In the way we talk about it is, you know, you're a very high level of open to experience, this level of curiosity, exploration, intellect. And one of the things around that is it, what comes with that is this sort of just energy and drive for curiosity, you know. The other thing also is really interesting is this other part of conscientiousness, which is, which is sort of not. As high as open to experience, but it's it's more task orientation or discipline, or but your your biggest factor around conscientiousness is more around achievement striving. That you're actually focused around achievement striving in a way that that overcomes a little bit of this notion. Of, I, I'm going to put it off till tomorrow, or not do it today, in a way. So in a way, your goal oriented to get you that place, but you're sort of in the middle. We compared to other people of your age group, extroversion, very really people oriented but maybe there's a description in a bit more of a t- detached way, but in a, in a deserved world, but you're interested in people and you get energised by that. It's not surprising in a way when you said, I like to do my study, I like to write an essay in a cafe f- around people because, you know, you feed off that in a way, don't you, in a sense of other people. Agreeableness is an interesting one because agreeableness is more about your capacity to deal with being socially oriented to people but in a, in a less conflictual way, right? So high agreeableness people, don't like conflict, right? Low agreeableness of people that always are in conflict. So, you know, maybe Trump in a way is very, you'll <laughs> be the very low agreeableness, right? But for you in a way, it's high but not really high. And one of the things that come up in a way is quite interesting, I don't know, it just sort of came up as one of the facets or one of the parts of agreeableness is around trust. Not that you don't trust people, it's just that you take a bit of time to trust people. And if that comes across for you, is that make is that you? Yeah, no,
2: I, I think about, I mean, clearly, I will trust my mother, I will trust Stan, but I don't know when I decided this, but I think it was quite young that if you don't trust anybody, they can't upset you because <laughs> you're not expecting anything of them.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, this is interesting because in a way there's a a predisposition there a little bit and an early experience as well probably because there's probably like a predisposition there but also an an early experience around this.
2: Yeah, and I think that was from observing the relationship between my mother and my father and watching that and going, you know, their their two personalities were just, we're never going to meet here,
1: you know. They were
2: like that. And I understood they loved each other but they were not very good together. I think I thought then, why, why this need for something that's that's not good for
0: them? <laughs> well, you know, in a way, like it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, I don't know, what help were you when they separated? Like,
2: oh, I was already 14, but yeah. I was thinking. You've experienced
0: like, that for quite a long
2: time. <laughs> I was yeah. like, they should be together.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because in a way, a child is a very good observer. You know, you just look at children and you ask them what's going on, and they can observe what's going on, and they rationalize it in a way that's quite different. To an adult. And maybe for you in a way, you sort of observed in a sense, oh gee, you know, they're um you can interpret it a couple of ways, can't you? You can interpret it like a child could interpret it's about me, something about me that why they're not happy. You could also interpret it, well, actually they don't like each other or they don't get on each other. So I'm not gonna force it. And and relationships are always gonna be a bit like that. They're always a bit vexed or and so we're always taking something from that experience, aren't we? That's gonna stick with us a little bit. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm not saying these that this is disruptive for you in a way that that in a way it's always this filter in a way that you see something in like it gets triggered in a particular way and it gets activated in a particular way and maybe for you there's a sense of trust in a sense of well maybe it's never always what it is and that's why you're always observing.
2: You can never really know anybody, can you?
0: That's right, but let's see that's see that's your filter, right? That's true, right? That you never know. Actually, you're right. I, I sort of agree with you, but maybe I have got the same filter. Yeah, I'm interested in this curiosity, but also this observer role because, in a way, you've always observed what's around you. And maybe that's that's I don't say it's a coping mechanism, but it could be a coping mechanism in the way that's the way I see the world, you know.
2: Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. I understand how how some kids, you know, felt like it was about them. I I never felt that, you know. I just felt these two personalities were (laughs) so different, yeah, and they couldn't have been together. So,
0: well. I'll go back to that one in a moment because the other fifth part is around neuroticism, which is around your anxiousness or depression, your you know your your proneness around those sort of things, right? And some of us, some people have, have got predispositions to be to experience the world in that way, right? In a more anxious or fearful way, or but for you, it's pretty low, isn't it? And and I guess for some respects, that that sort of articulates a little bit about your level-headedness. You know, you don't get caught in that moment your capacity to detach yourself in a way, right? Yeah. So one of the things then that intersects then with early childhood experience, and then we talked a bit about some of those with your parents and, you know, your own experience around just, you know, never being in one place and always feeling you're part of the world, right? So there's two parts that are quite interesting around need. is around need to feel the world's a, not so much a safe place, but there's actually a clarity about what people are doing and a clarity about what their roles are and a clarity that how they're engaging with you. But when it's not there, what they call a mistrust, right, and when when you're sort of thinking, oh, the the world's never really what it is, you know, how can you really know what the world is really, right? So that's one sort of need that gets developed sometimes when we intersect with early childhood experiences. The other one is around social isolation, which is a sort of sense of, of, well, I never really fit in. I can fit into a group, but I'm not part of that group. You know, I can always be be friendly. I I can always be engaged with people, but in a way, I'm always not, I'm part of the ocean, I'm part of something bigger or I'm never of a place. And I think these are sort of two themes that have almost sort of gone through your life in a way, right? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting in in a way that you start talking about these because there's two other secondary type needs that sort of develop as part of that process. One, you give a lot of yourself. So it comes across as sort of a self-sacrificing, but you give a lot of, you do a lot for people, and I think that comes up, and it's probably, a, again, not so much a coping mechanism, but a way you relate to other people is by giving a lot, right? And that sort of maybe in a way replaces that need to, to belong. It's not so much for belonging, but it's about giving so they they feel that you're connected to them, and you feel connected to them, but it's not a sense of belonging to them, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And the other one there is around these unrelenting standards. You've got high expectations in one level of yourself, because your, your achievement's driving and you want to do things and and I guess, you know, surprisingly you got into sort of, the, you know, your journalism is in that sort of sports arena where there's a lot of unrelenting standards mm. around trying to achieve things and that's sort of there as well. I'm still not sure how that plays out in your life because you've got this observer role but you're not in. So I'm not sure what how standards drive you.
2: Yeah, I'm very, you know, some people are competitive with others. I'm very demanding on myself.
0: Right. Okay. Yes. Okay. So it's more of an internal an yeah. internal critic in the sense how it plays in your mind. How does it play with your observer and not observer role? So does it stay real long or does it just go? Does it stay? Does it come for a moment and leave? or? What a-
2: no, no. It's always there. So, like before I go and do an interview with someone, I really try and think about you know, their life and their experiences and the choices they've made and why and what that says about them. And I want to try and find out something more. (laughs) No point hearing the same stuff all the time, you know, so you, you want to try and bury down into something. And so I'll read a lot of stuff about what other people have said about them or other people that have been in a similar situation to them but maybe from a different sport or maybe from politics or science or whatever, to try and access something differently because, you know, the questions they've always been asked. They want to try and tap into them from a really different way. So I'm constantly always trying to get more information. I never have enough information. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I want to do it yet when I sit down and talk to someone, I've got more than enough information.
0: That's interesting. I'll get to that one in a sec because it comes up as well, right? The other thing also that comes up is in terms of when we're talking about the narrative, right? I'm starting to think: Are you a, an episode to episode person, or
1: binge?
0: Might well, a binge? What if, oh, no, I no, no, no. I want to be, sorry. Not once. I don't want to mean is: Are you a, like you just go from one episode to the other episode in your life, right? Because the way some people work is they they, they move from a story right but it seems like you move from episode to episode like i'm in hong kong today or i mean
2: where people go oh you know you're really gonna miss this or you're really gonna miss that or oh what about the kids the poor kids you're moving again it's like no it's not like that at all there's no weight there's no burden they'll stay friends with all of their friends as will i and you just I hop on to the next thing or, you know, here's yeah. my next address.
0: Well, in a way, consider how that's connected a little bit to this this social isolation sort of need, the way it works. If, if, for example, you don't have that need met, then you feel disconnected, then then you develop another way of thinking about that, right, which for you could be about, I don't need to be connected to that place.
1: Yeah.
0: I don't need to be connected to that life. I need to connect to those friends. Those friends will always be there, right? If they need to contact me or I need to contact them, you know, I'm there, I'm around. Back to you like the way you talked about your friend. I'm I'm, I'm your friend. Yeah. I mean, I'm here. I know you're around. I, I know how you feel. Yeah. So this sort of sense of feeling belonging, right, is probably one of those, I don't know if it's belonging, but it's more about you, actually that's, you've sort of made a point, well, actually that doesn't really, doesn't mean much to me as much as it means to other people. Yeah. So in a way, sometimes in narrative we try to, Put a spoke in a ground and sort of say this is what it is and this is where I come from and this is where I've gone to. And since that's probably not there. In a way, it's like I said, I call it more episodic, yeah. Sort of living in a way, isn't it? Anyway, it's interesting. That's what maybe from your perspective. So another part there is if you think about from you as a as a person who creates meaning, right? So in a way you really enjoy sort of strategy, you enjoy problem solving, you enjoy skills around long-term, short-term mm-hmm. sort of planning. you got, you know, not much you're a planner, but you've got, you're really interested in in those sorts of issues, right? But probably one thing you probably struggle with a little bit is then focus because think about your example around, you know, getting all the information in and which ones do I use, which ones do I sift through, which one which one to leverage off.
1: Yeah.
0: There's, you know, too much curiosity sometimes. It's really great, but it can distract you a bit as well. It? Yeah. 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 How do you feel when I talk through this stuff and what's your sense? Is it a is is pain?
2: Yeah, look, I think that's right. I think that's, you know, everything you said is right. I, I do struggle with this idea of need.
0: You don't need anything. Is that what you're saying? Or? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> that's great.
1: <laughs> I, say that. I say that a lot.
0: If there are you know? more people like you, I want to be in, in business, but anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I really actually don't feel like... I have a need. I mean, clearly I've got to breathe, I've got to eat, you know. I do like talking to people, but if there's no one around, well, there's no one around.
0: I don't know. I haven't met anyone in my life that hasn't got a need, but you're the first.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, like all of those monks that walk around, they've got no need. And I've said to Stan, you know, Stan, when you die (laughs) and I'm 86, (laughs) I'm going to become a Buddhist monk.
0: (laughs) Isn't that part of their uh, life that they're also part partly have experienced all the parts of life? But I can I ask you though, like, but surely there's a need around you sort of need in having a lunch with Stan or having a child? Like there's there's not just a need, but they're more of a want, they're more of a want. Oh sure, there's always wants, you know. Yeah. That
2: can that ruins plenty of people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I try to look at it is with everything. Okay, is this a want or is this a need? And then put it in perspective, you know, because Clearly it's not a need. You don't need it. And I've said to Stan so many times, I'd be happy living on a tent, you know, on a headland somewhere. I actually I don't need anything. I, I don't need my shoes and clothes and earrings. <laughs> I don't.
0: What do you need at that moment? If I'm in a you know, in a tent with no shoes you know what I mean? Like what do you need at that moment? Because there's some need there, isn't
2: there? I need to know the water's there and I can dive in if I want to, you know.
0: Okay, so there's something about the water and the security that provides or connection that provides. Is your needs so high? Like, are they so high level? Not so much high level, but that they maybe sometimes our immediate needs are sort of like, I need connection. You know, I need I need to have acceptance, or I need.
2: This is what kind of I I can't understand. You know, I understand people have needs, but I have great difficulty in understanding why that kind of. I don't like that idea of being anchored to something or sort of need feels like I don't actually relate to those things very well, you know. And and that when I'm in the water, (laughs) you're just floating. You could be anywhere, you know. There's an energy in the water, you know, the the bubbles of the waves and and there's a tide and there's lots of energy and you could go many places. It's Mm -hmm. sort of like if I think about the best thing that could happen, it would be that every single cell in your body just dissipates outward like that and becomes one of those bubbles in the ocean. You know, it's just like that's yeah. that would be euphoric.
0: It's like you become absolute one with the ocean. Like that well, would absolutely be the, nothing. Oh, yeah. Well, we are 80, I don't know, 80% water. So I guess that probably makes sense.
1: Yeah.
0: Look, we've got to finish up in a minute, but tell me a little bit about what surprised you or not surprised you about what we've been talking about.
2: Oh, I think you've been really good at. You know, taking those various parts of a personality and, you know, defining what is kind of important to me and what isn't. Yeah, you've been very, I, I think you've been right on the money.
0: Good. Anything surprised you at know, all?
2: Well, 5,000 questions you asked. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I know a little bit about you. We'll we can finish up now. And thank you very much for giving me your time today out of your busy schedule and the 10,000 word essay that you've got to do. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please let me know what you think of this podcast episode or the podcast series in general. I respond to all reviews and really love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future guests to interview. You can also rate the episode on your favourite podcast platform. I would really appreciate this so that other people can hear about how you experience the show. If you want some insight into your personality portrait, visit my website to take a quick personality quiz to start the ball rolling. You can also sign up to a regular newsletter, which you can find on the podcast webpage. Look forward to presenting new and interesting guests soon. Bye for now.